Good morning. Today I'm going to be reading John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the laws and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we've been worshiping you, maybe even listening for you, God, I pray that we would hear you today. That right now as we hear these scriptures, your words, God, together that you would reveal your truth. That you would help us to understand and, God, apply. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to obey. And help us to know that as we hear your voice and choose to follow, that we move so close to you. Holy Spirit, we open our minds and our hearts and our souls to be transformed, challenged, and renewed by you. Amen. Well, we are in a series called Things Jesus Never Said, and we're looking at some things that Jesus didn't say so that we can actually understand better what he did say. Now, I don't know about you, but there are phrases that people use, ideas they use, sometimes even words they use that that they think Jesus said, but he really never said, or maybe they wish he would have said them, but he didn't say them. And even people who are his followers uh, can get this wrong. I was reading a quote that said, the problem with quotes on the internet is that you you can't tell if they're not true. Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) Some of you are like, I missed the coffee this morning. You know, Abraham Lincoln said some wise things. He probably did not post them on the internet. But, you know, it's easy to get confused. And I think as we look through what Jesus says and what he didn't say, we'll better be able to understand how to apply this to our life. For example, today we're looking at what Jesus didn't say at the end of his interaction with these religious leaders and the woman then neither do I condemn you. So go now and do whatever you want. That's not what he said. He actually said, go now and leave your life of sin. And, you know, maybe, maybe you have a Bible that shows it in red, so that means Jesus said it. But this story, you might even have a little note that says, um, well, the 
earliest manuscripts didn't include it. So therefore, I, I don't know if I want to believe it. You could hold that, or you could say, I wonder why when John was putting his gospel together that he chose or felt led by the Holy Spirit to include this story right here. Because it's actually smack dab in between a whole event that's going on. So why here and why these things? There's usually a reason. So today, we're going to look at this event. We're going to look at this basic idea of why we wish that it says, go now and do whatever you want. And then we're going to ask the Holy Spirit what he might be saying to us today. So have you ever heard someone say something like, uh, you know, yeah, go do whatever you want. You know, like you only live once, just as long as you don't hurt anybody. It's totally okay, right? You do you. You live your truth. I'll live my truth. Am I seriously the only one who's ever heard something like this? Okay. Yeah, YOLO, you only live once. Uh, And maybe you've heard someone talk about absolute truth or universal truth. And there's truth outside of us. And that is a really unpopular thing to say these days. That there is an absolute or universal truth that's outside of us that holds authority for our lives. I mean, I I would say it's not just unpopular. It's actually considered unhelpful, arrogant, maybe even hateful. So why do we like this thought? I think the logic goes something like this. Well, if God is good and happiness is good, then God must want me to figure out how to be happy. And if this relationship or this way of life or this thing make me happy, then God must want me to pursue it, go after it. I remember when a mentor of mine was, at a time, he poured into me for a few years He changed jobs and moved away. He came back a few years later and he called me to meet. And this is someone who'd shown me how to be a pastor, who'd taught me what to expect as a father. And as as I looked across the table at him, I knew it wasn't going to be one of those conversations. And he starts by talking about his last job and one of his first jobs. And then he paused like, almost like I wondered, had no idea where he was going, and he goes, Rob, you got to really listen to your wife. I mean, she's your joy, she's your pride, and she's the mother of your precious kids. you got to listen to her. And then he went on to tell me how he'd missed it, how early in his career, He was pursuing not just a good job at work, but these opportunities outside of work. And it was a job where he was in youth ministry. And in youth ministry, when kids and students are off in the summer, he is someone who then spends more time at work in the summer. And so he's doing camps. He's doing mission trips. He's going and speaking at places. He said, I was gone for six weeks when my kids were two and four on top of the work, and he said, I'm a self-professed workaholic. And I don't think about the fact that our family is several states away. And he said, 
I started coming home and I started hearing the same guy's name from my wife's work regularly, weekly. And all of a sudden I show up at one of my four-year-old's soccer games and this guy has come to watch her. He's like, I was losing my wife right before my eyes. She started saying things like, Paul, not his real name, Paul, I'm not happy. Oh, this is just a season, honey. It's, it's going to be okay. No, I am not happy. I can't keep doing this. You're gone all the time. And he said, well, I might be gone all the time, but, you know, you're talking to this guy all the time. And she said, I need someone to talk to. He said, I never spent that many weeks alone again. He said, don't pursue a vocation and risk losing everything else. It's just too easy. But a little seed was planted in her mind that day that came to haunt them years and years later. I'm not happy. Later on, many years later, kids are gone and some of the same things start to happen and she starts to say, I'm not happy and I have put up with you for 25 years and I think God just wants me to be happy. I'm out of here. There's a lot more to the story but here's someone who saw little decisions unravel before their eyes. I had a mentor tell me, we're all two to six bad decisions away from ending up in jail or divorced or something worse. The same mentor told me, if you're going to go into ministry, I want you each, we were a team of six interns, I want you each to think about, based on your personality, how God has made you, what you like, and your sin tendencies. To, this is several years ago. The internet was invented, but most people still got their news from a paper. He said, I want you to write out the news article on how you would fail in ministry and all the people that would be affected by it. I have never forgotten that story. 1998. I've also probably would not read that to you, but it was this poignant reminder that continues to come with me that if the accuser of our lives, Satan, would have his way, and we would fall to those things that we could crumble at any moment. Now, that's not exactly the story that we have here. 
The story that we have here is nestled in between these events from a, a festival that's one of the big three in Jewish life. So it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, and the people all come to Jerusalem. So hundreds of people, thousands of people flock to this place. It's sort of like Thanksgiving and New Year's Eve. I know those are far apart in our minds, but it's kind of like those two combined because it's this bringing in of the harvest and thanking God for the provision that he has. And then during this eight-day ceremony, there's these huge candelabras that are 70 feet in the air that go up from the temple. They're these 60-gallon uh, bowls that are filled with oil, and at night they would take the young, strong priests and they would give them a torch and have them climb a ladder and then throw the torch into this vat of oil. And then, flames the uh, Jewish commentators would say the flames would burst like 40 to 50 feet in the air and they would just be on fire all night. It was supposed to symbolize when the the Hebrew people went out of Egypt and went through the desert and there was a pillar of fire that guided them by night. And so they are supposed to remember their, their protection and guidance from God. And then the priests and the, the men of good faith and good deeds from that time would come and dance in the temple. And then people would pull out trumpets and lyres and guitars and drums and all these instruments and there would be this righteous party going on and it said they would dance until dawn. So that story happens and then just a little bit later there's another story about that festival and right in the middle of it is this story where there's someone or someones that didn't dance until dawn. Well, there's probably a different kind of dance, but um, Jesus comes back in the temple at dawn and the religious leaders are there and he sits down to teach and he's in the wider temple court. It's dawn, so maybe there's not thousands of people there, but there could be hundreds of people that are streaming in for morning prayers. And in come the religious leaders. You have to imagine Jesus being seated and these people all around him. So it's very easy that they could be paying attention to what Jesus is saying, not paying attention to the rabble ruzzle that's coming through as these religious leaders come. And I picture them kind of clutching her elbows as this woman is unnamed and and being brought before them. And it says that she's caught in the act of adultery, which brings other questions like, I wonder what she was wearing at that moment. I thought that maybe I'd bring a bedsheet and you know, teach in it, but I figured you nor I wanted to see that. But you know, that kind of thing is happening. And then they're using this woman. This is unjust. It and they are bringing her not because she has done something wrong, but because they want to trap Jesus. And if she is caught in the act, where's the man that she was with? If that happened, why isn't he there? And there are not video cameras at this time, so how did they catch her in the act? Because that's just disturbing. And so this woman is brought before them. objectified, accused, treated unfairly, and everybody is silent except the religious leaders. I've made some mistakes in my life. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. Um, 
But there is something about a public mistake that feels so exposing. I can't imagine the amount of shame that this woman is feeling at this moment. And as they're hurling questions at Jesus, the law of Moses says we should stone this woman. What do you say? Jesus bends down, starts writing in the dirt. This is the only scripture that records Jesus writing something. Is he using this as like some kind of delay tactic? I mean, these men have stones in their hands. Is he writing charges that are against her? Is he writing out the, what the law actually says? You know, Deuteronomy 22, 22, that if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man and the person who slept with her, the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Or Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Now, if we had more time, we would talk about kind of the context of that, why that's written in the law. But he could be writing out that. Or, as our bumper video kind of comedically showed, he, it's possible that he was writing out the sins of those religious leaders. We don't know what he wrote. But we're pretty sure that if he agreed with the stoning, he would lose his reputation as a friend of sinners. And more importantly, his platform that says God is a God full of mercy and grace. But if he doesn't agree with the stoning, then... He's going against God's law that was given through Moses. So he's in this dilemma. And so he gives this amazing answer that puts the dilemma back on the accusers whose hearts are not in the right place. Let the one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. And maybe in Jesus' mercy, he stoops down to write in the sand again to not have to make eye contact with every one of those religious leaders. And verse 9 says that this, those who began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, dropping their stones in till the woman was the only one left. Jesus stood up, asked her, woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Notice how he doesn't ask her, woman, are you guilty? I don't think God uses shame. I know God doesn't use shame. That is from the enemy. But sometimes God does use guilt to move in our lives, to bring us back closer to him. But his guilt or her guilt was not what his focus was. There's a time and a place for guilt, but that's not what he was focused on. At that moment, she was being unjustly accused and treated unfairly and objectified, and he stood up as her defense attorney, or at minimum, her advocate, and took up a case that no one else wanted to take up. No other people except the religious leaders hurled this, and everybody else was silent. 
So all the prosecution, if you will, left, and there was no one to continue her case. So at that moment, I think Jesus became the judge and could dismiss it. There's a judgment if you're getting worried about, does God care about sin? There will be a judgment, but it's Jesus' prerogative to delay that judgment, to give us a chance to stand before him. And he says, go now and leave your life of sin. Not go do whatever makes you happy, but go now and follow me. Go now. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Not whoever wants to be my follower must believe in themselves and wear a cross necklace and follow their dreams, but whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want us happy, that there can't be moments of joy. I think that's absolutely part of life with God. And it also doesn't mean, if you're like, "Uh uh-oh, that God is picking out this one particular sin and saying, this is the worst. Just a few chapters before this, Jesus heals a man who is invalid. We're not sure how he's invalid, but he's laying on the ground. He has a mat, and Jesus comes to him, heals him, and says, pick up your mat and and walk. And so he picks up his mat, and he walks. And it happens to be the Sabbath day. Matthew talked about the Sabbath day. And so he's walking, and the religious leaders are like, oh, you're working. That is a sin. You can't carry a mat. That is work. You are, I don't know, maybe they said, you are going to hell. And the guy's like, uh, you know, Jesus told me to. He's, the man who healed me said, pick up your man and walk. Can't you hear it? Like, it's not my fault. I, I mean, who's the real victim here? Anyway. That's the sin that Jesus came to him just a few minutes later. And he's walking, escapes the religious leaders. And Jesus says to him, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. So Jesus calls out taking up your mat and walking on the Sabbath. I don't know if that's the sin that you struggle with. We extrapolated a little. Do I rest and honor God? Well, I might be hitting something. But just like my mentor watched his marriage slide and crack, like we all can fall into temptation. So what are we supposed to do? Jesus says, go now and leave our life of sin. And I think what we do is we put like a life of sin in this category and then and, and actually either get upset that it's so rigid or we think that it's completely separate. And so we often don't know what to do. I said we're all two to six bad decisions from ending up in a really bad place. And I think it starts with uh, believing that we know better than God. That, oh God, I know what I need in this situation. Like I know you have a lot to do, God. You have a very busy seven billion people in the world, so I'll take care of my happiness. And and we live in this postmodern, post-Christian, multi-ethnic society where that you say there's absolute truth and no one's, no one's listening. So, you know, even the framers of our Constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident. 
that all people are created equal, that there are certain unalienable rights. Like today, people would go, well, that works when it works, but when it doesn't work, I don't want to go there. Now I'm imposing my truth on someone. I want to be judgmental. So we don't talk about self-evident truth. And we don't want someone else telling us what the truth should be or who is or isn't equal or if they should believe in a creator or not. So we kind of back away. But consider, if there's no absolute truth, if everything is relative, and I'm not saying like we all have to be mindless and believe whatever someone else tells us, but if there's no absolute truth, if everything is relevant, here's what I think happens. Then I get to become the measurer of what is good or what is bad. Or you get to become the measurer in your life of what is good or what is bad. You follow that? everything is relative, I get to decide. The fancy word is subjective moral reasoning. I hope I'm not glazing you over right now. Basically, it gets to mean I can decide what's good and what's bad, whatever I want to do. So, if that's the case, if I'm the measure of what feels good or right, if that is what I get to measure, then my standard of measurement is what makes me happy. Or what makes me feel good? What makes me feel right? And so my happiness is how I measure my actions if subjective moral reasoning is true. Now, you might be pretty intelligent. You might be kind of skeptical. So, you know, why is subjective moral reasoning so bad? Like, I mean, really, do we think we're all going to rape and pillage and kill? There are societies that show that they don't have to follow God and, and not do that. Well, one of my influences Ravi Zacharias. Dr. Zacharias was asked that exact question at a, at a forum. And the person said, why are you so afraid of this subjective moral reasoning? People just choosing what is good and what is bad. And his response was uh, a little humorous at first. He said to the, to the young man who said it, who seemed very intelligent, by the way, do you lock your door at night? Huh, yeah. So, you know, you want to pick and choose what's good and bad and want everybody else to do it, but you still lock your door. You're still a little worried that someone might make a choice that you think is bad, even though they think it's good. But, you know, if it's subjective moral reasoning, then anyone can decide. And there's, there's no governing principles. In fact, it would be really nice to believe that everyone's going to be nice to each other, but history shows that that's not at all true. This young man brought up China and that they're not governed by, you know, belief in God and Russia as well. Well, in the 20th century, China and Russia each killed 60 million people in their own countries. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in all of history. Now, maybe it's because we have more people, but more people died in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries combined. And 60 million in two countries that adamantly try to deny God. I mean, we think people are going to be nice. But when there's no guiding principle, then we all get to decide what nice is. So, I think that 
is part of why it's so easy to think we know better than God because we've grown up in this world where we're told that we shouldn't believe in absolute truth. But I think the other thing is, like I said earlier, if we put holiness in this category and then we put our happiness over here and think we have to choose between them, we kind of define holiness as maybe like good or religious stuff I do to feel close to God or to feel right with God and then happiness as the things I do that make me feel good about me. And then we think they're completely separate. There's an author, Dr. Paul David Tripp, who says, well, that's pretty natural to want what feels good. I mean, you want to arrange your life so you don't feel discomfort because that wouldn't feel great. It's natural to try and want to actually use religion or maybe even Jesus to make your life work out and to use entertainment or stuff or substance or pleasure to lessen that pain when that doesn't work out. But he says, just because it's natural doesn't mean it works. Why are some of the most popular and the richest people in the world some of the most unhappy? Because no amount of stuff will bring us true joy. Sin is temporary happiness. It's a momentary pleasure at the expense of closeness with God. It's less about what the sin is and more about that way I choose to find that moment of pleasure or happiness that makes me actually feel distant from God. That's what Jesus is inviting this person to go now and leave. Holiness is actually the path to true joy. Psalm 1611 says that you have shown me, God, the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasure of living with you forever. The joy of your presence and the pleasure of living with you forever. See, if we really understood what it would mean to be set apart for God, that that holiness isn't these external actions we do, but like Matthew said, if the seventh day is the day that's set apart and holy, and humans are created on the sixth day, then the first day that humans get to interact and enjoy God's presence is the day of rest. Now just, as I like to say, put that in your pipe for a little while and smoke it. I mean, we in America love to work, 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 whether it's you know 40 hours or 50 hours or 60 or 70, and get through the week and then, oh, I have the day off or I have the days off, or I get my weekend, because I earned it, I worked for it. But in the creation story, God is saying, at the beginning, I actually designed it for you to rest first, for you to enjoy my presence. I picture the seventh day as God walking with Adam and Eve and going, do you see that? That's, I'm going to call, I mean, I think you should call that the hippopotamus. And there's two, so it's the hippopotami. Check out how, how big I made their mouths open. Look at that. And look how giant they are, and they just kind of float in the water. Like, I did that. And check out this tree. Do you see how big it is? Like, I'm thinking about carving that out, because one day you're going to design a tree, and you could drive through that sequoia. And, you know, and then check out the puffer fish. You know, like, whoa, ow. You know, but there's this enjoyment that's happening, not because we earned it or because we're approved, but because God approved us right away. Live 
from a place of rest and peace. That's holiness. I think lastly, the reason it's easy to slide into temptation is because we set our expectations too low. I mean, we don't know this woman's story. I just know my friend's story. And I know that it was a lot less about her deciding to go and do something and a lot more about him deciding to go and do something else. And while she has responsibility in it, so does he. And somewhere along the way, something happened. We could spend lots of time on it, but I think it'd be more important to just ask the Holy Spirit, where do I struggle? Where do I slide into temptation? What new story could be written about me if I just make three or four or five or six bad choices? Not to make us all sad, but setting the expectation too low is like expecting the things of earth to give us the joy that God put in our hearts at creation. And God has heaven set in our hearts, this communion with him, that anything that we do that's truly outside of that isn't going to fulfill, that God made and we can enjoy, but isn't going to give us that ultimate satisfaction that life with him gives. Max Lucado, he makes this greatest illustration in his book, Heaven, God's Highest Hope. And he says, And it doesn't take a wise person to know that people long for more than the things of earth. I was sitting with someone yesterday who spent the week with foster kids. Really intelligent person, very high functioning, able to disassociate in appropriate ways. And this person just said, like, I really saw God, but it was so broken. And I had to ask why. We just sat in that for a few minutes. Because when we see pain, something moves us. And when we see hunger, something questions why. And when we see senseless death and hurt and tears and pain, we start to go, what is wrong? Why isn't there more to life than just death? And Max Lucado would say that this unhappiness on earth is actually cultivating this hunger for heaven. That it reminds us that God created us for more than just being here. And that when we're a Christ follower and we're trying to find ultimate satisfaction on earth, it's kind of like a fish who's trying to find pleasure on the beach. So if you ever find a fish, you throw them up on the beach, watch what happens. Like, They flop on this side, and then they flop on this side, and then their gills kind of gasp, and their skin starts to dry out, and they're flapping around. They don't look very happy. So, you know, you give the the fish a beach chair and cool sunglasses and a nice sun hat because that might make them happy. It makes me happy on the beach. And if that doesn't work, then you go get them a European leather shoulder bag 
and, you know, fill it with Benjamins. And, you know, that would make me happy. And if that doesn't work, you give them the latest and greatest smartphone because, man, there are some still some really cool apps out there. And, whoa. But if that doesn't work, you know, I don't know, you could have a party and you could invite all the fish babes and the fish dudes. And, like, you know, blow up his Instagram feed with all the fun that they're having. And if that doesn't work, if he's still not happy, then, I don't know, you could have fish cocktails. Uh, you know, I worked hard on these. So, like, uh, you know, a walleye whiskey sour or, you know, a Mako shark martini or even a barracuda Bloody Mary. You know, give him some of those. See if that makes him happy. But what's really going to make him happy is if you put him back in the water. Because the fish is not designed to live on the beach. The fish was made to live in the water. The life that we are trying to live on the beach is ultimately not going to fulfill us. No matter how hard we try, you and I will never be completely satisfied, happy on earth because we're made for more than earth. This new heaven and new earth that Jesus talks about, that he says he's calling into being, that he's creating all things new in Revelation, and the happiness on our earth will not compare to the happiness that is in heaven. You and I, if we say yes to Jesus, we are set apart. We need to lower our expectations of earth, but not of heaven. So enjoy the new car or the boat or the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the vacation or the likes or the money or the pair of shoes. It's almost school shopping, but it's not going to make us happy. It's not going to satisfy. And when we think it does and we're disappointed, then we start to look for the other stuff. And that's when temptation comes. And some of you are there right now. So as the band comes up, as we prepare for communion, I just want you to spend a couple minutes with the Holy Spirit saying, oh, where, where do I slide? For some, it's, maybe it is the fish cocktails. Or it's the overeating. Or statistically, in the room, it might be prescription medicine. It might be clicking through images that you think will bring you closeness and pleasure and intimacy. Or it could be the wrong type of relationships. Gotta have this person who pays attention to me, who gives me worth. Sin promises a satisfaction but it's really at the cost of closeness with God. And when we're there and we don't know what to do, we have to remember that every temptation that we face is an invitation to depend on Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, if you don't know this one, oh, you gotta put this one in your heart, you gotta memorize this one, Every temptation in your life is no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. God sees you. God loves you. God wants you to experience a joy that you might never have experienced yet. 
He is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And when you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure it. Another translation is so you can stand up under it. Sometimes it's just a moment. It's like when Jesus said to the woman, go now and leave your life of sin. When the temptation comes, it's this invitation to depend on Jesus. One of my friends said, I felt this strong temptation and normally I would have given into it, but this time, instead of giving in, these words came to me. Wait, I don't need to do this. I have the joy of the Lord. I take joy in walking with, right with God, in step with God, being one with God and honoring him. And he said, a few minutes later, the temptation was gone. It was an invitation to depend on Christ. Maybe for some of you, you're like, I don't know how to get out. I, don't, I, I mean, this desire is so strong. Do what one of my other friends did. Pray for God to take away the desire. God, if you just take this desire away, he said, I won't take another drink. He said, God, answer the prayer just like that. It was gone. And it's not the God who I'd been taught. I thought I had to work harder for it and that, that I had to confess it and keep going back to God. And in this moment, it changed how I saw God. When God just took that away, it changed not only how I saw God, but how I saw me, which changed how I saw, seeked him. As we come to communion, hear the invitation to commune with God to find your life and your satisfaction in him. It will last. Holy Spirit, speak to us now.